Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. Any cancer diagnosis is scary and signals a long, challenging road ahead. But rare cancers, those that affect fewer than 6 in 100,000 individuals each year, come with their own sets of challenges as patients and doctors navigate gaps in knowledge, treatment scarcities, and more. And these challenges are compounded still further by disparities in access to care across income groups, geographies, and racial groups. In today's podcast, sponsored by Oracle, we'll be talking about the particular challenges of health inequity in the rare cancer space. I'm joined by Otavio Clark, Vice President of Oncology at Cerner and Visa, an Oracle company, and Sheree McClurkin, an Associate Consultant in the Oncology and Specialty Therapeutics Group at Cerner and Visa. We'll be talking about the particular challenges of health inequity in the rare cancer space. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Hi. So, Otavio, let's start with you and, and feel free to give us a little background on on yourself, but um, I, I want to hop right into the discussion here too. So, so tell me a little bit about um, the diagnosis piece in, in rare cancers. How can we improve early diagnosis? Hi, Jonah. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, it's really a challenge because if you think broadly, the definition of the Orphan Drugs Act in the U.S. say that a rare disease is a disease that affects less than 200,000 people in the U.S., most of the cancers, even those cancers that we talk daily, leukemias, ovarian cancer, and so on, they would fit the definition of a rare disease under the Orphan Drug Act and also under the World Health Organization definition. This is why for rare cancers, we have a different definition. That is the one that we just showed us. That a rare cancer is a cancer that has an incidence of fewer than six cases per each and 100,000 individuals per, per, per year. But the important thing here is to think that even if the number of each patient with hairy cancer is small, hairy cancer as a whole represents more than 25%, one quarter of all cases of cancer, what can give us a, a kind of a dimension of the issue that we have, because usually these hair cancers, they are difficult to diagnose, difficult to treat. We don't have too much information about it in the medical literature, just, just because of this rare aspect of the rare cancer. We just don't have studied enough people, enough patients to better understand the rare cancer. And then it comes with some some difficulties in the diagnosis because some of the diagnosis of the rare cancers can be very difficult. Sometimes the pathologist can say, I know that this patient has a cancer, but they cannot say what type of cancer it is. And in the real world, it brings us to the point that you discuss is the inequities. Of course, an experienced pathologist would have a easier way to give the, the, the diagnosis of the rare cancer in this case. So that's the, the first thing. It can lead to delays in the diagnosis and in difficulties to access the treatment. Also talking about the treatment, as these entities are not well known, we have few centers specialized in, in the diagnosis and treatment of such cancers. And uh, the research, unfortunately, we have very limited funding because as I said, the number of cases is very small, and we cannot think about the whole 25% of the cancers that we have that represents the rare cancers. 
So you talked about some of the difficulties of early diagnosis across the board for these rare cancers. Um, but Cherie, I'll, I'll turn to you to talk a little bit about how that is impacted or compounded by socioeconomic factors. Right. Um, thank you, Jonah. Also, um, thank you for having us today. Um, so we know that social and economic factors encompass a wide range of topics, which can include one's ethnicity, their income, education, occupation, um, place of residence, et cetera. And so these can vastly impact treatment and diagnosis. Um, so if we sort of examine um, first access to health care across socioeconomic statuses, broadly speaking, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are facing larger barriers, such as limited health care coverage, lack of transportation, and inadequate health care facilities. And so all in all, this can really lead to delays in seeking medical attention, um, resulting in later diagnoses of rare cancers when they are already, you know, very challenging um, to not only diagnose, um, but to treat. Um, and so when it comes to then looking at something like awareness and education, um, individuals with higher socioeconomic statuses generally have better access to health education and awareness campaigns. They may be a little bit more knowledgeable about cancer symptoms, their own medical history, their family medical history, risk factors. Um, and so really this uh, largely can influence your, your, your awareness, your education, again, seeking treatment. And this, having that, having that awareness, having that education can really facilitate early detection um, and prompt medical intervention um, and really improve the prognosis of these rare cancers that are being diagnosed. Um, conversely, those people with limited awareness and education, which you know we see across many disadvantaged populations, um, that may contribute to a delayed diagnosis and poor treatment outcomes. And so, if we you know thoroughly look at financial status, um, that really plays a crucial role here, and is really um, a sort of disproportionate barrier across socioeconomic status. Rare cancers often require very specialized diagnostic tests, treatment centers, medications, and that can be very expensive. And socioeconomic factors can really influence an individual's ability to afford these healthcare expenses. Um, those with lower socioeconomic statuses may face financial hardships or, or have high out-of-pocket costs that can really prevent you from having any real um, appropriate care. So there's sort of lots to think about here and collectively, we have to continue to recognize and address these crucial disparities in care. Yeah, it really isn't just one thing or, or one uh, axis that this affects. And, and to that point, uh, we haven't talked too much about cultural barriers or, or language differences yet. Um, Otavio, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yes, of course. And as you can hear, I'm not a native speaker. And it can be an issue even in the smallest things when we communicate with patients and patients communicate, uh, communicate with, with us because the accuracy of the information that goes from the doctor to the patients and from the patient to the doctors is central to understanding the disease, understanding the treatment. And besides all, if the patient has a complication with the treatment, that is a, an urgency, uh, a difficulty in the communication because of the language can be a real issue. Imagining that a patient is has a, a low socioeconomic 
status is in a far city in a state that's not very well populated. And then he has a, a, a side effect of the treatment. He has to communicate with a doctor that is in another place and he's not a native speaker. So it's, a, it's, a, it, it's an issue. And we can add to that the problem that for the, most of the rare cancers, we don't have even too much information on the internet, if you, if you think about it. It's not something that the patient just can go and type, I have this rare cancer type, and the information will pop up, and he'll say, aha, now I understand it. No, it's, it's not. So if we, if we talk about these difficulties in the access, language is an issue in a multicultural country as we have here in the U.S., as we have in Brazil, and we have in some other places. Uh, we, should, we should pay more attention to this in the rare cancer fields because it can interfere in the prognosis of the patient. And I, can, I can tell you that I have seen some things happen that happen because of language. Interesting. And, and if I can just ask a follow-up, what, what can be done there? What, what are some kind of steps that uh, caregivers can, can take? Uh, that's an issue. Of course, that for languages that are more common in, in a country, like here in the U.S., we have English is the dominant language, but we have a very good amount of the population that speaks Spanish, that speaks Chinese, even Portuguese. And uh, if we have availability of translators for these, at least for the most common language, it could minimize the problem. And also what I... I, I see for the future is a larger use of artificial intelligence in the communication that we could talk, you know, with the machine, with the natural language processing, the machine could translate to the doctors and vice versa. It's, it's something that can be done, but it is still in the horizon. It's not something that we can do today. You can imagine how that could be helpful for, for scaling. Um, one thing we haven't talked about yet, and we're going to get into sort of a little more in the next section, but Cherie can kind of kick us off talking about the geographic piece. How does location factor into uh, caring for rare cancers and, and some of those disparities? So we kind of touched on it just a little bit, but to sort of further elaborate, um, access is a huge you know, barrier when it comes to care. And so medical facilities and oncologists in particular can vary geographically. Um, so if you have to go to a specialized healthcare center, um, they're oftentimes concentrated in specific geographic locations. And a lot of times they're in the bigger urban areas and not necessarily um, where rural people live. Um, and so these centers typically have expertise in diagnosing and treating rare cancers, access to innovative treatments, and availability of multidisciplinary teams that are very important for not only diagnosis, but you know, treatment and then follow-up care. And really these teams are able to manage complex case cases. So patients living in close proximity to these centers have easier access leading to better treatment outcomes in general. Um, additionally, proximity to certain centers might even influence the type of treatment that you receive. We know certain centers have pathways, have formularies. They, um, you know, there's different regimens that may or may not be available um, based off of a multitude of factors. So um, it really can lead to some different variations uh, of care. Um, and if the specific regimens are not available, then you, you know, you kind of get what's um, 
what's available at your site. And so if you live in a rural or remote area, you may lack these specialized healthcare services. And oftentimes they sort of lack just the operational structure needed to deliver um, the kind of care that's standard for these rare cancers. Um, so there's the the extra burden um, for people who don't live close to these, to their oncologists, to their to specialized healthcare centers. A lot of people don't even necessarily live that close to their primary care physician. So you can see how that's even more of an exacerbated issue. And so there is the extra burden of travel. Um, there's the financial burden that comes with having to pay these out-of-pocket costs to travel long distances. And a lot of times, um, you know, with cancers in general, and specifically with, especially with rare cancers, you might have to travel with a family member. That's an additional care. There's time away from your family. That's, you know, emotional burden there. That's financial burden. Um, so there's a big toll, a heavy toll that location can really um, play on patients when they're already experiencing challenges dealing with uh, rare cancers. And so we, you know, more and more we're expressing the language of what's important for our mental well-being. And so I think we have to acknowledge the fact that we need um, these specialized centers. We need the proper um, oncologists and doctors to sort of be spread out throughout to mitigate these extra challenges that these patients are experiencing when they just don't live in proximity to where they need to be to have the proper care. I was recently at a conference um, all about cell therapy, and there was a lot of discussion about this in that context of, you know, incredibly promising cancer treatments that require highly specialized equipment, highly specialized training. And how do we get that out to underserved communities and, and have it kind of broadly distributed? And that's a good point. Um, you're, I, I'm sure you're talking about CAR T therapies, um, which are very innovative. Uh, but yeah, that's one of the challenges. And so we can see that these, you know, these challenges aren't very specific to rare cancers, but they're just, they're exploding when you have a rare cancer where there's just not, there's not even as much knowledge. Um, there's not maybe as much data that we have for say like breast or something like that. So yeah, the challenges are just expanded throughout the healthcare industry when you have a cancer that's just extremely rare. So what steps can be taken to increase the awareness at these, uh, you know, in these underserved communities in these places where you don't necessarily have um, the, the top of the line, what have you, and, and make sure these, these patients get diagnosed in a timely manner and have the best options for, for treatment? Yeah, and that's a, a great question. And I think it's so key and important to start at the community level. Um, as so much of our lives are impacted by our culture and by our community, there's so much cultural and community nuance that really needs to be incorporated um, for us to be able to target these audiences in a very authentic way. So starting out with community outreach and education is very fundamental. I'm engaging with community organizations, local clinics, and community leaders to conduct targeted awareness campaigns. And so this can involve distributing informational materials, organizing workshops and hosting community events to educate individuals about rare cancers, their symptoms, risk factors, and the importance of early detection. So this can also help develop materials that will resonate with specific communities and are culturally sensitive. So because, like I said, there is that nuance and not everything speaks to everyone. And so we want to make sure that we're being sensitive to people's cultures and really speaking to what speaks to them. 
And so also using community level data is really important here and could really help drive our campaigns. And so expressing to your target audience the incidence of these cancers and the impact. And so Oracle is really, you know, examining this and we're trying to leverage our Cerner EHR data to look at the demographics and patient types across rare cancers. And we have um, some uh, infographic that's going to be available this month for Rare Cancer Day, really looking at um, the demographic uh, across rare cancer. So I think Oracle can be a key partner and player um, in terms of using the data to really help understand not only the incidents throughout communities, but what the impact is. So some other ways to increase awareness could be collaborative efforts with healthcare providers um, serving under underserved communities to enhance their knowledge and awareness about rare cancers, along with training sessions and continuing education programs to keep healthcare professionals up to date with the latest information related to rare cancers. And leveraging those peer-to-peer networks within the communities to help disseminate information and share survivor stories. And I think this last point which is so crucial because we cannot underestimate the power of hearing from an individual that looks like you, that's from your community, talking about their disease journey and the impact that it's had on their life and really reducing the stigma surrounding healthcare that we have in some of these underserved communities. And I think Otavia might have a little bit more to add to that as well. Uh, I just to underline the importance of building this trust, because in this hairy cancer scenario that we are, we are discussing, Sometimes we have such high level of uncertainty just because it's difficult, for instance, to, to diagnose one case of rare cancer. As I said at the beginning, I can say that this patient has cancer, but I, 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 I as a pathologist, cannot say what type of cancer. And uh, it can lead to disagreements inside of the medical community, inside of the doctors, and Historically, we have, we have some communities, some minorities, that they don't trust very much the system. And this uncertainty that is unfortunately natural in this rare cancer scenario can reinforce that distrust to the system. So last year we spoke about, about it in a rare cancer se- uh, seminar, webinar that we did about how how important it is to acknowledge uncertainty in this, in this field. And as Sherry said, this community actions should take this also into consideration. So I want to uh, take a, a little bit of a, it's not really a detour, but, uh, but talk you know, specifically about a topic that we, we've um, addressed on the podcast a few times before, which is clinical trials and, and underrepresentation and lack of diversity in clinical trials. Um, and specifically in this area of, of rare cancers, what are the sort of unique challenges there? What, what are some of the major challenges there that might not be unique? Um, and, and, uh, and how does that affect kind of the, the disparities as we've been talking about more broadly? Maybe, Shree. Yeah, thank you. And that sort of piggybacks off of Otavio's um, statement regarding, you know, the uncertainty and the mistrust um, and so this is a very sort of complex question, right? So it's sort of rooted in history and it's rooted in what we're you know, currently facing, some of the current challenges that are still going on. So I think first we have to continue to acknowledge just the history component of mistreatment and exploitation of minority and underserved communities by the medical industry 
which has and continues to stoke opinions of mistrust and skepticism. And so I think the stigma that is associated with the medical industry is one of the main challenges. And so always, if we want to be authentic, if we want to be transparent, we have to start from a place of recognition of that. And I think that's a good place to start. And then we just build from there. Some of the other challenges are just, like I said, lack of awareness and knowledge within diverse populations due to, again, could be some of the historical mistrust uh, leading to limited interactions with doctors and researchers, um, language barriers, uh, like we sort of talked about, Otavio really elaborated eloquently about that, and just cultural beliefs surrounding healthcare. Not every culture has the same uh, sort of belief about, you know, doctors and, you know, what their impact is on our day-to-day lives and how, you know, what, when do we go to the doctor and at what point is it really necessary? What, what point is it really crucial? Um, so there is, you know, again, that cultural nuance there um, that can speak to certain barriers and, and access, again, is a main and very important barrier. So there are different access barriers to participation, which can disproportionately impact diverse peoples. Uh, such as limited access to healthcare facilities in the near vicinity, transportation. We talked about financial constraints, time constraints. Um, if you if you're part of a lower socioeconomic status, oftentimes your first thought is, "Can I miss work? Um, is this an additional reason why I can't go to work? And if I can't go to work, that takes away from my paycheck." Are my kids at school? Who's going to watch my kids? I might not be able to afford uh, child care services. So there are lots of um, factors that uh, diverse people, underrepresented people are trying to uh, sort of think about when they're thinking about whether or not they're going to participate in these clinical trials. And so in this lack of diversity, we see across the healthcare industry, again, it's not specific, but it's just exacerbated um, by the by the fact that the conditions are rare and there's just limited information um, regarding the disease. So if we have less information regarding rare disease than we do, like I said, for some of these more well-known lung cancer, even other comorbidities that may be more well-known, more well-established in these underserved, underserved communities, then we're more than likely really unwilling to participate because you just you may not have ever heard of it. You may not think it's impactful. Um, so these are the, the challenges um, that uh, we have with recruiting diverse peoples in clinical trials. It occurs to me that, that it, for, you know, when you're doing a, a clinical trial on a rare disease, there is a challenge in, in recruiting just to find enough patients with that disease. So looking to these community centers, of expanding your, your base of patients that you can find should be uh hopefully a win-win, right? To, to improve the trials as well as improve the, the access for these communities. Is, is the onus on the, the CROs, the, the trial organizers to kind of tackle this? Or who's, who in the medical community should be yeah, taking the lead? This is difficult because depending on how rare the cancer is, we can run a clinical trial like for instance, testicular cancer, osteosarcoma, these are rare cancers, but we have a fair number of patients that we can run a clinical trial with them. So this is, this, the CROs and the pharmaceutical companies, they would take care of that, work together with the community hospital to increase the number of patients in the clinical trials. That's one point. But we have cancers that are so rare that often the evidence comes from five patients, 10 patients. 
15 patients is a must. So the number is very small. And uh, in this case, and this is something that Sherry and I discussed a few days ago, in these cases, I think that peer-to-peer -peer network, reporting the data, having, Sherry is going to talk more about it, but talking to the, having, having opportunity to report the case is the key to improve the knowledge about these rare, rare, rare cancers. Sherry, do you want to pick it up there, talk a little bit about how this can be addressed by the medical community? Yeah. So again, I think and Otavio and I were discussing this as well, I think it really has to start at the community level with that engagement and with that partnership. Because like he said, it's so rare. We're talking about N equals very small numbers. Um, so really in imparting the impactfulness on a community, if already the data is very limited, the incidence is very limited, I think really has to start at the community level, especially if minority peoples like African-Americans, if we are in general more trusting of people within our communities than establishing those partnerships with community organizations can help bridge the gap between healthcare providers and the target demographics. Again, you know, if we're trying to build off recognizing the mistrust, then we have to have transparent and inclusive practices. This involves addressing historical injustices, ensuring equitable access to services, and actively involving these underserved patients like African-Americans and their community representatives in the decision-making. Um, it needs to be very clear what they're participating in, maybe how long, all of the parts of the trial that can be disclosed should be disclosed and should be disclosed in a way that people can understand. Um, that is very palatable across different literacy levels across different socioeconomic levels, um, people should be able to walk away and fully understand what they're participating in. So again, those transparent and inclusive practices also continue to improve diversity within the medical field, including doctors and researchers. I, I don't think we can say enough about willingness to participate when we see the representation. Representation matters. And so I think... Um, just continue to address diversity within the medical field. If we see um, doctors and researchers that look like a diverse population of people, I think that that speaks across a, a wide range of peoples, a wide range of cultures, and it really reflects our society that we live in today. And I think that that can really, again, speak to the people that you're trying to target. Um, so any initiatives looking to solve recruitment challenges must be authentic transparent, promote cultural competence, engage meaningfully with minority and underserved communities with the help of local community. And again, using the data to really drive home at the community level, to really drive home the impact of rare cancers and why it's important to, you know, let your doctor know if you want to start with your primary care physician, of course, that's important. You know, letting someone know your symptoms, getting tested, genetic testing, um, you know, just getting that care to try to intervene to improve the overall survival um, of these people that are diagnosed. So we talked about diagnosis, we talked about access, and, and we talked about trials. Um, and we're going to be transitioning to sort of the, the final two sections here. We're going to talk about uh, mitigation and what, what we can do, what Oracle's doing. But before we do, um, Otavio, talk to me a little bit about uh, disparities in outcomes. Why, why do we see um, different outcomes in, in 
between racial groups, for instance, despite similar diagnoses and, and um, maybe similar treatments? Yeah, that's a simple fact and a very complex answer. We know that these disparities occur between race, different, different ethnicities, and so on. And uh, we have to see this in a two way. One is biological, that we don't understand very well. And the other one are due to inequities in the access of the treatment. Because it's a fact, and it's an unfortunate classic fact, that minorities in overall, they have worse prognosis when we talk about cancer in general, and uh, specifically in the rare cancer field as well. Uh, we have enough evidence to say that there are huge impacts from the socioeconomic and racial conditions on the outcomes of patients with rare cancers. And just to give you an example of how it, it happened, there is a, pub a published study, it was published about two years ago, I think, about a very rare type of cancer, uveal melanoma. It's a, it's a specific type of melanoma. This study could get 5,000 patients from the SEER database, that is a nationwide database in the US. And uh, they, they first found that there was a difference in the outcomes between uh, black population and white population. And then the next, next question that they asked about, whoa, is this due to biology? Or is it because of something else? And then they went to study how the patients received care. And what they saw was that uh, patients that were African-Americans, that were black people, they had a slower evolution of the health care received throughout the years. What it means, the adoption of new, more effective technologies for this population was slower than for the white population. So it gives us very strong evidence that it's not only a question about biology, but it's also a question about access, about how minorities are treated. Like this one, we have many others. Of course, they are very difficult to, to do in the rare cancer fields, but it's unfortunately a classic fact in, in, the, in the field. Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, and just another thing to add on to that, I think um, what what Otavia and I are really trying to convey throughout the entire podcast today is sort of continuing to address all of these systemic issues that occur that impact or cause these variations of care and really just getting to the biology of the disease. And I think, you know, we're coming to, into the age of precision medicine, and that's such a great evolution um, in, in our in care and how we treat. And so really when it comes to the disparities we see with diagnoses and treatment of certain racial groups, we want the biology of the disease, the genetic, genetic variation, et cetera, to really drive diagnosis, treatment, follow-up care, and not these other systemic issues, including inequities and um, biases and you know access and that really come into how we treat that really shouldn't be there. So what, what can we do? Uh, we'll start with Shuri and talk a little bit about education and awareness and, and um, among healthcare providers. How can we, how can, and we've talked about this throughout, but let's maybe sum up and if there's anything we haven't discussed yet in, in terms of mitigation strategies that you want to introduce. Right, yeah. So 
um, research initiatives. I think we all come from, you know, we're PhDs, we're MDs. So we really um, can appreciate the research side of medicine. So research initiatives focused on rare cancers specifically, including epidemiology, genetics, treatment, and their associated outcomes, I think is very important. Um, medical conferences and symposiums that are specifically dedicated to rare cancers, right? So having those forums where medical professionals can talk. I mean, these are rare cancers are, I mean, we can't underscore the word rare. <laughs> so we're talking about um, very small case studies. So there has to be, again, these opportunities for medical professionals to say, okay, I've had this patient that I've treated X type of way. Here was the outcome. These might be some of the only instances where they can really discuss with each other and really um, formulate a good algorithm about how to treat these very rare rare patient types, online resources and webinars that offer educational materials um, and again, case studies, clinical pathways and guidelines. We have um, NTCN is the um, sort of guideline resource for oncology. You can find guideline resources for a lot of the, um, I'll call, I say main, but high incidence um, tumors. But again, we need those same and and doctors, oncologists need those same resources for um, rare cancers to be able to have a sort of dedicated pathway by which they treat uh, patients. And again, that's going to increase their knowledge and awareness of rare cancers leading to improved outcomes. Again, those peer-to-peer networks, we need forms for patients to be able to discuss um, how has not only um, their diagnosis, their treatment, their follow-up care, but the impact of their day-to-day lives. How did they manage certain things or you know, what resources are out there you know, to help our mental health or somebody who maybe is not even diagnosed, but has a family member, a caregiver um, who is trying to help support in different ways. Um, so that that's also uh, very unnecessary for patients and their caregivers and their families to have these sort of resources to really understand how their day-to-day life is and will be and will continue to be impacted um, by these rare cancers. Um, and also patient registries and databases I think one thing that we can't underscore is, um, do we truly have the current and most up-to-date data in terms of incidents across um, a range of demographics and geographies? And so we sort of talked about um, the challenges of access and barriers within um, diverse populations, um, populations of lower socioeconomic status. Um, are they really represented in what we know now? Are they represented in the in the data? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, but having that current and up-to-date data really informs the incidents, really informs, okay, who's really impacted? Are they um, Hispanic people, non-Hispanic people? Are they African-Americans? Are they Caucasian? What does that really look like? Are they populated more in urban areas, more in rural areas, big cities. Um, So we really need that current and up-to-date data. And I think that's what Oracle um, with Cerner's EHR data is really trying to, I think that's the forward reach, um, is really creating these opportunities to really be able to collate the data that we have and and the data that's always incoming. So yeah, so then having that data, what what do we do with it, right? So we want to understand what's the overall survival? What are we telling, you know, what are they being able to tell the patients? It needs to be up to date. Are you living X amount of years and five years outside of diagnosis? Are you living X amount of years within 10 years of diagnosis? Um, So I think it's really important uh, to have that data to really boost the education and awareness. 
Yeah, thank you. And and we're going to talk a little more about what Oracle's doing with the data. But before we get there real quick, um, Atavia, what about on the policy side? I mean, we say systemic problems require systemic solutions. What what are some kind of policy interventions that might help to make sure that we improve this across the board? Well, in this case, the list is long. The actions are obvious and everything is hard to do. That's how we can kind of say on this. The first thing is we need to have a better way to deal with the health insurance, with the access to the medical care of these patients with rare cancers. The burden that the patients and their families with rare cancers takes with them is, is huge, it's huge. As, as we discussed it here, they have to, to travel, they, they, they don't have easy access to the care close to where they live. There are the issues with uh, the socioeconomics and racial disparities and everything and everything like this. And so the question is, how can we have a better healthcare system that does not put so much financial burden for the patients? Sherry said before, uh, the, the first question that comes to the mind of a patient like this is, oh, am I going to miss work? I'm going to lose my payment. How can we build... Uh, U.S. is the richest country in the world. How can we build a social uh, network that could take care of these of these patients that could, you know, diminish the financial impact that these rare cancers would have in this family? Uh, so it's obvious, but it's difficult. Is it difficult as well? And of course, we need research funding. We, as we have been talking here. I think this idea of peer networks must come at some point to, to alive. And uh, also some simple things that can be done, like if we could invest more in a peer network with telemedicine in, in healthcare infrastructure, that could help with patients. Uh, that could at least solve part of the, of the problems, you know, about diagnosis and, and, and the treatment. So it's obvious, it's long, and it's hard to do. So with the last five minutes we have here, I want to ask you both, um, what are some of the specific steps that Oracle is taking um, around uh, everything we've been talking about, disparities in, in rare cancer care? Um, Sherry, you started to talk a little bit about the data. Um, and and uh, maybe, Otavio, if you want to pick up on that, you know, how is uh, Oracle leveraging that, all their in-house data to understand these disparities better? Yes. Uh, Oracle bought Cerner, electronic health records companies, uh, a while ago. And uh, that we have been working in the electronic health records in, in many different ways, trying to extract human data and produce uh, publications and understanding how this field is. And uh, one particular point of interest is in rare cancers. I'm deeply involved in this movement. We were able to present a study of rare cancers at ASCO last year. This was specifically about patients with uh, NTRK or untracked mutation. And, and uh, this is interesting because the patients that have this mutation, they have two treatments available for, for them, regardless of the type of tumor. They are related to, to the mutation itself. And, uh, but there, there are not many published studies, and we could found 178 patients in our electronic health records 
with this mutation and um, we did a study about who, who are these patients, what the outcomes and so on. We are updating this study and it will come out maybe next year, I don't know, maybe by the end of the year. And it will be today the largest cohort of patients with such rare diseases. So it, it will improve a lot the knowledge that we have about patients with this particular disease. We have also take, took an initiative about studying uh, some types of rare tumors like Merkel skin cancer, osteosarcoma, pituitary endocrine cancer, soft tissue carcinoma, and testicular cancer. And uh, we could get almost 50,000 patients of, of all of these five or six types of cancer. Of course, soft tissue sarcoma, we could get 28,000, testicular cancer 22,000, and then we could get 3,000 Merck cell carcinomas. 300 patients with osteosarcoma, uh, 1,300 patients with, with pituitary endocrine cancer. And we are studying these patients and uh, who they are, what is their distribution based on race, on, on socioeconomic status, location, how does it affect the outcomes of the treatment of the patients? Where are these patients being treated? Are they being treated in large academic hospitals or they are treated in regional hospital networks? Does it have an influence in the outcomes of this rare cancer? So we have this initiative, as Sherry said, uh, we will publish an infograph in, in, I think, in the last week or so. And uh, this data will be used also to produce some scientific papers that we hope uh, to publish soon. And uh, talking about the overall survival rates, the influence that they have. So it, there are a lot of initiatives that Oracle, CERN, and Invisa are doing. And we hopefully will continue to move on in this fascinating field of rare cancer. Thank you. Well, can't wait to hear more about what comes out of that. And, and we'll certainly um, include a link to that infographic in our show notes. Um, any other final thoughts from, from either of you and saying, um, or, you know, what, what do you want to leave people with as they um, continue to, to think about and, and work on these really important problems? Yes. Well, thank you for having us today. Um, I definitely think the um, the sort of takeaway is, again, uh, rare cancer, um, some of the, the challenges, some of the issues are not specific to rare cancer, um, but again, exacerbated by just the low incidence numbers, the, the sort of lack of knowledge. So it's going to take you know, some government funding. It's going to take pharmaceutical companies to um, sort of prioritize these cancers on their pipelines. And then with the, with the help and support of companies like Oracle with large uh, sets of data, um, we can really help um, sort of expand our understanding and knowledge of these cancers. How can they be better treated? And yeah, hopefully um, really understand more in the coming years and really help to tackle uh, some of the challenges regarding um, diagnosis and treatment and follow-up care. And of course, as a society, we know we have some work to do when it comes to challenges regarding socioeconomic status and how they impact our daily lives, even outside of healthcare. But again, always want to do what we're doing, at least start with the conversation, very authentic conversation about how um, socioeconomic status is impacting uh, patients who are diagnosed with rare cancers. And then the next step is how we can continue to support initiatives to tackle and address these factors so that they do not um, negatively impact 
our standards of care for these patients that are already having a harder time than some of the harder patients who are having a hard time. So, yeah. So we want to continue to just have that conversation and propel forward where we can. And I think that's where Oracle Insulinary Visa is um, looking to to be that support. Octavio, anything to add? Yeah, I think that these initiatives that we can can take uh, using here or the data, here or the evidence to produce knowledge, trying to mitigate the influences of the of these determinants of health, like uh, socioeconomic status, race, and so on. This can change the landscape of treatment of hair cancer. And in special, we have to find a way of delivering a better health care and having a social network of relief for these patients. I don't know how to do it, but I come from a country where we have universal access to health care. That is Brazil. It's far from perfect. But at least the patients have a kind of, a, you know, a baseline thing that they can do without being financially burdened because of the diagnosis of a cancer or a rare cancer. Well, thank you both, uh, Otavio Clark and Sherry McClurkin. Uh, thank you again to Oracle for sponsoring this important conversation. And thank you all, as always, for listening. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. <laughs>